Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We are currently in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Wherever you get those podcasts, you can find us there too. And maybe learn to even love us. So, <laughs> I like that. So, on this episode, we had uh, Dean Harris. Dean Harris is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and director of the Dan K. Webb Center for Advocacy, as well as the Marianne G. McMorrow Professor at Law at Loyola. And she joined our show to discuss the new professional identity formation class here at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. It was a great conversation. It was very amicable, and she was an excellent, excellent guest. Dean Harris did email us and wanted us to mention up front. She, we forgot to talk about this in the interview, but she wanted to make sure that we mentioned uh, Imani Holly, a 2L who was, was Dean Harris's right hand in developing the professional identity formation class. And so without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful Dean Zelda Harris. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, well, now you know. Yeah. So I've experienced it. <laughs> That's right. You can say you lived through it, as we all did. Uh, yeah, I've also never seen an entire city canceled for a day. I think We're... it was uh, unusual for yeah. Chicago for two days. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to me, it was really more emblematic of the infrastructure problems, right? Because transportation is an issue, right? We had yeah. lines that were down, um, especially uh, on the south side, the entire Metro Electric. <laughs> and they were setting some of them on fire to make sure that they weren't freezing over. Did right. you see that? That was sure. bizarre, but yeah. uh, that, like, if it works, it works. Right, but right. That, yeah, that was crazy to me. Really. Yeah. Uh, so we're rolling. Professor Harris, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. So, Richard, you wanted to jump into a few background questions about Professor Harris. Yeah. Um, let's start with, first off, where did you grow up? And how did you end up, how did you end up in law school to begin with? Well, that's what we call a very broad, open-ended <laughs> question. It's whatever Richard. you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. That's an invitation to pretty much say whatever you want. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's an interesting story because... I want to actually start with a little bit of a personal narrative. I have a uh, 88-year-old aunt that just passed away last Wednesday. And when a kind of legacy member of your family passes, you know, you take stock as you're writing the obits and you're, you know, gathering folks together where you all have been and where you're all from. So my family of origin is really from Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents uh, are from that area. And so... As most um, black Americans have some roots and lineage in the South. And so, in fact, um, you know, we've been very fortunate in that we've been able to trace our ancestors, at least to the port of entry um, in Richmond. Uh, as you know, Richmond mm-hmm. was a, a huge slave holding um, uh, state. And so, we've got that, um, we actually have records dating back to that lineage. And my aunt, uh, Mary Cotton was her name, was the historian and the kind of 
keeper of that information. So it's kind of, it's a big loss for our family because she also was a keeper of lots of pictures and photographs, you know, dating back to 1890, right. you know, photos yeah. and the like. And so, anyway, this is on my Be- father's... That was before people were smiling. Yeah, this is <laughs> my father's side of the family. And so my father was a one of... Well, he's a twin, but he also has uh, four siblings. And long story short, he was able to leave Richmond with my mother, and we moved north. And so I uh, eventually landed in Massachusetts. And if you consider where you grow up, where you went to high school, then I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. Oh, right near BC. That's right. That's right. After um, some forays in and around the Virginia area, we spent a year in Louisiana that I wouldn't recall and some time in New Jersey. But eventually, like I said, landed in Newton. And so... As far as law school goes, uh, you know, everyone's path to law school is different. I can't say I was one of those kids who said I always want to be a lawyer, but I think I was always, um, I was a middle child. I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, And you're always negotiating and mediating uh, disputes and sometimes advocating for folks. And so I was definitely well positioned. And my older brother went to college at Washington University in St. Louis. So after I went to undergrad in St. Louis, I followed him out that way. And so that's what carried me to the Midwest, and I went to Washington University in St. Louis for law school. I was the youngest, so we were more inclined to be begging (laughs) as opposed to negotiating. (laughs) I would say actually or taking, uh, but yes, okay. Depends on... I can back Set, her up. Says I, the I obvious a, middle child. <laughs> I was also a middle child, so I can back her up on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so since law school and beyond, I've seen, I saw that you worked at the, uh, before here, you were at the University of Arizona, and you've taken a, your career is usually included and in, centered around domestic violence and children's rights issues. Right. I wanted to get into that a little bit and yeah. what brought you to that field. and One, how is it? How has working in that field impacted you, and how, uh, and and what are some important points that listeners should know about those those two issues? I guess. Yeah, thank you for that yeah. question. So once I was in undergraduate school in upstate New York at Syracuse, I had uh, really really tracked myself into a social work track, and I had a very interesting academic advisor who said, well. The job prospects are uh, probation officer or drug treatment counselor. And I felt like not really what I'm interested in doing. So I took a, I mean, I'm not sure if that was sound advice or not, but I felt like she was giving me some real advice. And so from there, I I did an externship as part of my degree at a legal aid office in upstate New York, and I happened to be placed with a family law attorney, and the light bulb definitely went on. And so from there, I you know, took the LSAT and, and kind of made my path. And so coming into law school, I will say that I had a pretty clear idea that I wanted to go into public interest work, domestic violence and family law, perhaps, but I knew that my um, passion lie in public interest. I did try other paths, you know, for those summer jobs. Mm. I, 
I worked one summer for 3M Corporation reviewing contracts and why people um, dispute contracts for billboards on land. I thought this will never do. Can I just say, <laughs> one of the reasons why I'm upset that we don't have video is because listeners are not going to be able to see your facial reaction just then, <laughs> okay. which was great. <laughs> okay. It was just so like, well, I'm not pretty, doing that. pretty yeah. much how I felt that entire <laughs> summer. But again, so it, it, it led me, it kept leading me back to um, Legal Services Corporation. LSC corporations at that time were still pretty prominent, and so, as they are today, but there were more of them. Yeah. And I worked um, for an LSC in St. Louis during law school. And so from there, you know, if you've ever worked in that environment, you know, the majority of the caseload that's coming through the door are people with family law problems. So, you know, benefits, family law, housing, kind of the big three. And I developed interest and, um, I guess, expertise there. So my first job out of law school was at Land of Lincoln Legal Assistance Foundation in Alton, Illinois. So I studied for the Illinois Bar, passed the Illinois Bar, and worked in pretty much rural um, downstate Illinois, right. which I would say is pretty much the South. And, uh, you know, <laughs> not, you're not far off. That's yeah, no, no, no. It, it, uh, my my experience with Confederate flags and all of that was definitely enlightened uh, during that experience. I uh, called that childhood. But yeah. <laughs> so um, I, 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 Alabama for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've told the story a few times about my clients. You know, this is back in the Stone Age. And although we had computers you know, there was no uh, Skyping and internet. So all of the contact with the clients is either face-to-face -face or on the phone. And most of the clients are in remote areas from Alton. So I would have to travel sometimes 80 miles to get to the local courthouse where I'm meeting the client face-to-face -face for the first time. Mm -hmm. So they don't really know what I look like because yeah. they've only had communication with me by phone back and forth, interviewing, detailing the case. I don't necessarily know what they look like, but, you know, implicit bias is just fascinating because the shock on everyone's face when I show up at the courthouse, like, are you my lawyer? Um, they're not expecting a black woman, you know, coming in mm -hmm. to represent them. I'm pretty much an anomaly in that space in the early 90s. So it was uh, an incredible experience for me. I learned so much during that time period, and eventually it led me to Chicago. Do we want to get anecdotal for a second here? Any right. any good, any story you would want to feel comfortable sharing about those times? Well, I mean, I don't have any, any particular story, but what I will say, um, you know, uh, the, the more kind of urban courthouse was the one in Madison. Mm-hmm. County in Edwardsville, Illinois. I don't know if you know where that is. No idea. Yeah, me either. <laughs> but I believe it exists. There's actually a college there. <laughs> um, so smoking was still allowed in the indoors. courthouses oh. indoors. Yeah. And I don't know if you can imagine being a lawyer and like there's actually a backdoor conversation happening in the judges' chambers where people are smoking cigarettes and cigars and like you've got to enter that space to try to negotiate something on behalf of your client. I, I think back to that. I mean, as a young 
person in my early 20s, that's like, you have no fear, I guess, or maybe you have no full understanding of what you are doing. You just know you've got to get in there. But I, I thought like that type of environment is what I was practicing in for most of the early part of my career. And although that dynamic doesn't physically still happen, perhaps, I'm, I'm quite certain that the backdoor negotiations and the bartering that go on still exist at some level across the country. So those are tidbits of things that I um, remember, but I, the, the people um, in the rural communities that needed help were just so impactful to me, and those, those needs are uh, just as dire in rural America as they are in urban America. And so I was able to translate you know, the skills that I had learned at that time when I came to Chicago in an even bigger uh, dynamic of, of practice. Well, yeah, I, that's one aspect that I have constantly thought about, especially during your domestic violence class that I was in I, last semester, semester before, about the, you, I mean, you just mentioned you had to drive 80 miles. Yes. So when rural families have issues, that it, it, there are certain barriers that they have to get through, such as how do you even get to the help? Right. Yeah. That's that, right. That I, I guess in urban areas, I don't want to say it's easier, but it's it's certainly closer. And right. some some of these families might only have one car. How do you right. get away if you only, you know? Right. So, yeah. Right. No, it's huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Not a lot of resources. Oh, yeah. So. Jake, did you want to? No, okay. I'm I'm ready to jump into the the meat and potatoes. Um, <laughs> why we invited you on this afternoon? <laughs> okay. um, I have so much more to say about my personal life. You don't. Want to... <laughs> do we want to? Let's. Well, you did do a good transition with the implicit bias. So no, I, I I'm with you. I, I did just real quick. How did you end up at Loyola? Again, not a short story. Right. Uh, so I don't know if you know from my background that a lot of my professional training experience outside of um, litigation uh -huh. is training lawyers in trial practice, right? So I've had probably 20 years of experience with the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, yeah. NIDA. So you know this because you've taken our trial Trials. advocacy classes. And so when I first came to Loyola, I was the... Um, named the director of the advocacy program. Mm -hmm. And Loyola has hosted the NIDA Midwest Regional Trial Advocacy Program probably for 15 years, or may maybe, maybe it's been 20 years as well. So I've been a known entity here at Loyola um, for quite some time. Okay. And the, uh, my immediate predecessor was a direct mentor to me, Professor Jamie Carey. Um, you didn't have the benefit of knowing him in the classroom setting, but he taught here for over 30 years. Uh, I've known Professor Elward as well. We've all taught. Love that guy. Yeah, we've yeah. all taught together in the NIDA program here at Chicago, Loyola Chicago, for many years. Um, and then I also was a visiting law professor here. So I left Arizona um, as the director of the domestic violence clinic there. Mm -hmm. And I actually taught civil procedure and evidence and trial practice here at Loyola for a year when this building, or at least they were just moving into this space, but classes were still being held over at where Arupe yeah. is now. 
And civil procedure was a year-long course. So I had a, a group of about 90 students for a two-semester civil procedure course, which was the most incredible uh, teaching experience I can say I had had to that point. And some of those folks actually have come back around and have uh, taught in this professional identity formation course. So it was just a kind of a beautiful circle there. And that would have been 2006 to 2007 that I was here as a um, visiting professor. So my connection, I had practiced in Chicago, so people kind of knew me just from practicing primarily in juvenile court and down at the Daly Center. Bruce Boyer, Stacy Platt, Anita Weinberg are, were all colleagues of mine from that time period in different venues. Some of them were at LAF. Bruce and I worked together um, at a clinic at Northwestern. So I consider Loyola just uh, a second home, really, and now my first home. Great. I do want to... This is not the proper venue, but I do have questions as to why it's no longer a one-year, why Con Law is no longer a one-year course. That's, yeah, or, uh, all of, all right. of the courses, right? They were all right. mostly yeah. one-year courses at one year but, at that time. That's a different conversation for a different yes. day. All right, meat and potatoes. So yes. we, you mentioned the professional identity formation course. Yes. Let's start with what is the course and uh, why was it developed at Loyola? You know, so I tried to get a chronology for you because, as I said, when I first came to Loyola, my position, you know, was director of the Advocacy Center, so I really was not involved in the larger curricular planning of the, of the law school. You know, my wheelhouse was in the advocacy department. But uh, something called the Cultural Impact Initiative, students who um, were like yourselves, um, starting a capstone project. And this would have been um, under the leadership of then Dean uh, Yellen. Two of the, I guess, leaders of that initiative, Talia Shifron and Somaya Sastri, who graduated in 2018. I can remember them coming to my office down on 10 saying, Professor Harris, you know, we've got this proposal for this cultural impact initiative, and we'd like to make it into a course. And this would have been, I, I'll say they came to me early 2016, but it could have been as early as their freshman or their 1L, 1L yeah. year in 2015. It could have been that soon. First semester, but I, I guess it would have been. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like it would have been yeah. spring of 2016. And so... Um, I, could, I could not even imagine proposing anything my first semester. Well, yeah. they were activated students in their yeah. undergraduate and, you know, um, master's programs. I mean, they were very you know, educated, sophisticated folks. And so I will say since that time, let's just say early 2016, I've been working with this group of students to try to navigate through some space to get them either access or a class or something. I mean, I couldn't really negotiate a required course, but I definitely directed them to the folks, right, that mm -hmm. could maybe help. Because at that time, really, the issue was, well, who's going to be teaching that? 
You know, I don't yeah. have the bandwidth to teach that uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. And so that was not, um, so that's how it kind of started, it really was a student effort, I will say, initially. And then there were efforts really that preceded that. When I got here, Dean Yellen had already uh, established something called the uh, Dean's Diversity Council. And in my looking at kind of the first uh, agenda notes from that, uh, cultural competencies and implicit bias were like squarely on the agenda back in 2013, and I'm assuming prior to that as well. So it seemed that the university or the law school leadership was, was concerned and interested in addressing cultural competence and implicit bias as early as that time. I can recall also going to a faculty retreat in December of 2015, and that's where I met uh, Dr. Erin Reeves, who eventually... Uh, she's the uh, head of the NextGens Corporation, who mm. eventually was commissioned to conduct the cultural competence and implicit bias survey, the climate survey that was um, issued between 2017 and 2018. Right. We, I talked to Dean Kaufman about this, yeah. uh, I believe, last, that would have been September or October. But yeah. Right, yeah. right. So I guess what I'm saying is early as even... so. By 2015, the faculty was well aware that we have to address the issue. The kind of um, delay in my, I, I think I can say delay, I, don't, I think we can own that there's been delay, was who's going to be responsible and who's going to like do it, right? right. And so again, at that time, I'm leading the advocacy center, so that really wasn't on my, um, I didn't see space to do it, mm -hmm. right, or authority really at that point in time. So basically what the Cultural Impact Initiative did was continue to issue a series of tools to first-year faculty, but it was available to all faculty on how to manage difficult conversations in the classroom, how to incorporate concepts of cultural competency and implicit bias in the classroom. Obviously, some of your professors, Professor Juan Pereira and others who are experts in the field, um, talked to us about the Harvard implicit bias test, right? And so we were all taking, you know, so everyone was kind of getting educated on this topic. But how it was going to be carried out, I'll say probably up until uh, 2017, it was looking as though a class would be offered in the upper level curriculum as an elective. Okay. And that was probably a concession. It really was not what the Cultural Impact Initiative and their allies were looking for, but I think that's where we were headed, but still needing to find the person to teach the course. And as you know... Sure. I was very fortunate that Dean Kaufman asked me to become the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs in January of 2018. And at that time, I did have some ability to kind of see the broader curriculum and where things could be situated and how to kind of move a 1L class forward. Clearly, the April, 20, April 2018 letter that I'm sure you're all familiar with that... Mm -hmm. um, leadership 
of various student groups wrote concerning incidents that had happened in the 1L class, I guess that would have been fall of 2017. So this all happened, of course, in the surveys being commissioned. So there's a lot of attention to, are we just glossing over the cultural competency and implicit bias issues? Like, are we avoiding this discussion? We need to kind of hit it head on. And the students, to their credit, said, yeah, you're not doing anything. You need to address the issue. And so since April of 2018, it's been my charge that I have voluntarily accepted to take it on. So um, that's on top of all the other things that I do as associate dean, (laughs) but I went full steam ahead. But by Mm -hmm. that point in time, I had a lot of um, data, a lot of information that had been fed to me, not only by um, students and their kind of view the survey, their resources, the tools that the Impact Initiative have put together. But I really want to credit um, others at the law school, not just Professor Perea, but um, Dean Josie Goff. Okay, so, you know, Josie has been here, uh, to my knowledge, probably since 2010. And I don't know if you've participated in her civility in the profession conference, that she requires of anyone who's participating in the externship program. So it's my understanding that she had been lobbying for a required course for all. So you've got people advocating on the faculty side, students advocating, but nothing formally put in place. But her civility in the profession seminar is a a one-day event, Mm -hmm. and it does cover issues of implicit bias and civility and uh, health, mental health and um, wellness issues and the like. So we had a lot of uh, content experts and a lot of folks who were very interested in moving it forward. We just didn't have where we were going to situate it. So that's what my task was. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can just turn to the nuts and bolts of the actual class a little bit. So, I guess, what are the stated goals of the class, class and uh, what, are, what are the methodologies going on in the classroom to try to achieve those goals? Yeah, so we came to it. So the class, ultimately, the platform, um, the lead instructors are myself, Professor Goff, um, Professor Perea, and Professor Miranda Johnson, and adjunct professor Carla Coupe Arion. So I, I have to really talk about her for a moment before I answer your question directly, because sure. one of the first things that I did, even though I have all this information, this is not the space that I teach in normally, right? So mm-hmm. sure, I know about this from life experiences that I've already shared with you. I know about it just from, you know, there's a lot of intersectionality involved in teaching that domestic violence course. Mm-hmm. And then just being a litigator, you have to know, to be able to have a 360 view. Mm-hmm. But um, I, we hired Carla as an expert. So Carla is a Loyola Law graduate. She is the Title IX um, attorney at Chicago State University, but she formerly worked for the City of Chicago Law Department. And she runs a, her own private entity called the Impact Alliance. 
and she had been a member of the Dean's Diversity Council. So that's really where I met her initially. And so we hired her as a um, consultant to help build the class so that as I'm putting it together, I've got someone that I can work with to say, look at this. Is this um, content and the way this is being put together consistent with best practices in your field? So I think that kind of addresses, you know, how is it put together? But the starting point for the, the co-leaders of the course was that we all have um, some principles and shared values that we all can agree with, right? So if you're here at Loyola, sure, social justice writ large, we all agree, is that being a shared value and goal. This is the first I'm hearing of it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but, you know, kind of drilling down, and I really credit Juan for really, you know, asking us, like, explain what does that mean, mm -hmm. right? And so getting to these issues of cultural competence and implicit bias, it's clear that the ABA has issued the rule and the um, comment that if you're going to be a competent attorney, then you have to be culturally competent and you must avoid implicit bias or at least raise your awareness on it. And we really were not doing that here in any type of concerted way. Sure, various instructors, and you know who they are, mm -hmm. are going to deliver that content to you. But were we asking ourselves as a profession and training um, emerging professionals to like deal with this issue. Mm -hmm. And so um, what, what, that was the starting oh, point. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly, could I get a definition on cultural competency just because I'm unaware with that specific phraseology. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and in some ways it's really not it's really a dated term. It's just the term that everyone probably is most familiar with, cultural competence, because there's no way that I, and I'll just speak about myself, could have knowledge uh, deep enough to understand your culture mm. or your culture or everyone's culture, right? I mean, we don't expect people to have expertise on every culture, but what we what we do want is for folks to be aware that people have culture and that you have to be able to delve deeper into a person's um, background before you can represent them fully. So culture can mean so many different things and kind of understanding the layers of what I, culture based on identity or community can mean and your competency and understanding that you've got to address that. So not just taking for granted that people come to the table as a blank slate. They come to the table with the history of their family, their community, and the experiences, and whatever other, I, I guess, matters impact their life. So uh, the culturally competent attorney is really the culturally aware attorney and so I don't I cultural competency has been seen as as you know oh I know everything like I I've, I've studied up on this group so I'm good right no 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 we don't we're right. actually trying to disabuse ourselves of that because no 
community is a monolith, right? You can't, I can't sit here and say, I know everything about the black community, right? That would be ridiculous for right. me to say that. So that's, I think that's where we're trying to, um, we were trying, that's what we were trying to achieve in this sure. class. One yeah, of the goals. I, I just, it, it's such a, I guess, non-specific mm-hmm. nomenclature that I just, it, it's one of those vacuous types of things that you could throw anything in. But what I'm hearing is just an understanding that people are mosaics and they have uh, basically a conglomeration of things going on that they bring to the table. Absolutely. Okay. I was, I was about to say, yeah, that it, what you were describing, it sounded like it could, if I'm in a room with a hundred different people, there's absolutely no way I'm going, if I'm, if you and I sit for six months, I think I could get a basic understanding of where you're coming from. If I'm in a room with a hundred people who I, on a very, very basic level, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, there's no way. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm going to be able to, you know, uh, see where they're all coming from. So, yeah, I, I do get what you're, where you were getting at there. Uh, uh, well, yeah, so I, th- I think that now that we've got some of the definitional things out of the way, let's just drill down into, like, the stated goals and exactly what what tools are being implemented in the classroom to try to achieve those ends. So one of the things that I did before, you know, in the course development stage, I guess, of course, you look at other models. And again, um, the, the uh, placement of professional development training in the first year has been um, an ongoing effort for the last, I would say, 10 years at least. So I think Loyal is ahead of the curve now, but we definitely were not in the game. Right. Okay, so the fact that we were in 2018 and did not have a professional development or professionalism or civility course situated in the 1L curriculum was not keeping in line with the current trend. And so uh, Josie Goff went to a professionalism conference in 2017 and brought back um, all of the syllabi and course um, materials for not obviously not all 200 plus law schools but for many law schools and so I was able to take a peek at some ideal models UCLA in particular Northern has an interesting um, program Um, University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis so you know all had different models some were um, full 14 or 16 week uh, classes. Some went over two semesters. Some were electives. I mean, so everyone's kind of doing things differently. Some were more career uh, guidance focused, mm-hmm. uh, drafting resumes. Like, I felt like that's not what we need here. You know, we have a pretty good system in place for resume drafting and interviewing. Or we have a system, right? Yeah. Um, and it didn't seem like that's what the call of the community was for, right, based on the student request and what have you. All of the programs at some point, at least the ones that I've identified, had a segment on diversity, inclusion, and equity. And wellness also was a big component. So again, just given what I knew from the survey and from the preceding years, we were going to focus on that. But what I think what we do here is different. Obviously, the five weeks is different, and I can, can talk about that, and I will talk about that. But the, the, man, the delivery model 
I think, makes us unique. And I'll say that that's a direct result of my work with Mita mm. for 20 years. And you know this from your involvement in trial practice. We get small and we get one-on-one, right? Mm. We, you know, we learn by doing. We don't learn by lecturing. I mean, the lecture is part of it. But we learn by engaging with the material and with each other. So for me, kind of pulling out on all of this, I was like, I need an army. <laughs> I, I need, like, people yeah. to, you know, it's 275 law students over four sections. And this includes the weekend division. Mm-hmm. Me, Juan, Josie, Miranda, Carla cannot do all of that. We got to break. Just, just running quick numbers. That's about 57 people per person. Yeah, yeah. we've, yeah. we've got to break it down. And so... You know, obviously there's got to be efficiencies or cost involved, all of the things. Um, so what we were able to do eventually is break down a section of 70 or so law students into four smaller sections. So most of the class sections where the actual one-on-one, if you will, work got done had about 20 to 25 law students in it. I mean, it would have been great if we could break it down to even smaller, which some of the faculty did. So for each section of um, 20 or so, we had two team leaders. These are outside lawyers who are mostly alum, who I have to say, like bringing back alumni, some of whom had not been involved with Loyola for whatever reason, but saw this as their passion, their expertise, and opportunity to give back was a phenomenal experience. So there were about 30 of those outside lawyers that I needed to come in to help over these sections. And then in those sections of 20, typically, depending on what the exercise was, the students would get broken down into even smaller groups and then come back to report back. So that, again, was all a direct result of my training as a um, uh, trainer for NIDA to see how that had worked so efficiently. And I, I don't think any other program, with the exception of some that try to use an in-of-court model, are kind of going, uh, tackling the issue this way. So does that answer the question? Yeah, and I actually did have... a follow up and this is a question we got from a 1L who we're potentially bringing on next year. Who will rename, remain, remain nameless. Okay. Even though he's sitting right next to me. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> um, we, so the sections of the law school are typically broken down. Well, weekend, of course, is all lumped together because yes. they're the weekend course, but they're typically broken down. There's the public interest and they're all put in a section during 1L. You can't remember the others. And then there's, you know, I guess, business-minded people who are put in the section. Why, uh, when doing this course, do you think it would have been beneficial to mix sections? As opposed, uh, And that was a kind of a critique that we were, I was thinking about, you know, it's reasonable, yeah. I you know? think that's a great suggestion, and that's the first I've actually heard of it, and I think that's a great suggestion. I think logistically, you know, I would have loved to have had more time, right? right. I would sure. have loved to have had more time. It's also the first year. It's to, never, to, yeah. to build up. Uh, so, you know, we're taking mm-hmm. all the kind of feedback to try to figure out what to do for the year ahead. But 
the life of a law school, uh, it all starts with admissions, right? And so I've got to rely on information that's coming from the admissions office about who's coming. And I, I don't know if you want to get into the weeds of all of this, but the admissions office is we really the one that, that drives who's going into mm -hmm. the sections, right? And so students have to know, uh, especially for this class, because we're sending them the book, the color of law in advance, we, they've got to kind of know like where they're going to be for this class. So I think it would have been, it will be difficult but not impossible to break the sections up, but because they, they um, section one sure. walks lockstep with each other, and so they have a break at this time on this day to right. start moving the students okay. between yeah. sections, I'm not sure, that would just be really challenging. It's a logistical nightmare. Uh, it's, yeah. a legi it's a legit, but it could, it could happen, yeah. but I, I think it would be very difficult. I didn't even think about that. And, and by the way, when you're a 1L, you're so in your own zone that you just think everyone's taking con law right now. <laughs> right. Well, you know, so it's, yeah, right. I didn't think about that. Right, okay. right. But I mean, those are just, you know, I think the, the broader question is, do we have to keep putting everyone together in those groups in the first place? And so that's a different broader question um, that maybe this class will influence, maybe we should start breaking them up. You know, is there really a need to keep all of the child law fellows together and all of the, you know, business and public interest folks? But They'll know, eventually meet. They'll eventually meet. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, okay, so let's talk about, let, uh, so what would, I guess my next two would be, what would success and what would failure of the course look like? Let's start with success. So, yeah, and, yes. and by what metrics are we measuring? Yeah, so I, um, as uh, the 1L students know, really the, the main tool that I used was surveying. Um, they were surveyed constantly after every module. So there were five modules, and the modules uh, consist of a reading assignment, and usually, um, which everyone, uh, I'll end up putting that in the didn't work category, and then there were there were podcasts, videos, and alike to to review. There were um, assignments, reflective assignments. So this is very reflective class. People have to read something, watch something, listen, and then reflect on what their experience has been for themselves and based on the material. And so they were surveyed after every, every module. And we were able to both get feedback and then edit in real time, self or course correct in real time. So for, for me, I have a lot of survey information that's got to be distilled We've had a, um, a final kind of uh, meeting of all the teachers and instructors to try to distill the information. But ultimately, you know, the metric, just like any other course at this law school, is surveying. You know, it's the faculty evaluations. It's, you know, the information that we're getting both qualitative and quantitative about whether or not it worked. And the final assignment is a large reflective piece. So I think success is whether or not students under, understand some awareness of what the course objectives and goals were as indicated by their final pledge of professionalism that they take at the end of the course. 
Didn't we do that during orientation? Yeah, but orientation <laughs> is a pretty stressful day. Sure. And you're just kind of um and, and you know, I you know, we have a lot of points of entry like that, right? We've got orientation, we have um there's a mandatory profet that there's a public interest convocation orientation there's a professionalism requirement uh it's a, a lunchtime presentation that's probably been rescheduled because of the polar vortex so that'll be coming up for yeah. the for the one else but still it's not enough time to really dive deep and also like success for this class for for me and i think the other instructors would agree in that group of 70 or so students when you're in your Civ Pro class, right? Or probably more constitutional law is is or criminal law. And somebody makes a comment that just sounds like, okay, I'm gonna assume that this person holds this view, has this background, what ha you know, just based on appearance and one comment. We need to break out of that, break away from the implicit bias that we are you know, hanging on each other. Sure. So my hope for success is that the group of students who are now moving into their second semester know a whole lot more about each other. I mean, that's really, uh, that the dynamic in the classroom mm -hmm. will change even amongst each other. And I'm not saying, you know, it's going to be, everyone's going to be great friends and holding hands on seven. But what I am saying is that you can tear away some of the implicit bias that may that that are that's in, impacting all of us right i also hope that the 1l instructors uh in the second semester and even moving forward are going to be interrogated and asked questions more about not just what's the black letter law but what's the story behind the case mm -hmm. Who are the people that were impacted? Like, we've got to get students to a point where they're not just accepting the letter of the law, but that we get them in a position to challenge the impact that the law has on people. That's what we're here for, right? Because if not, you know, the robots will win. So, you <laughs> know. They're going to win anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, so this concept of a implicit bias mm -hmm. has come up a lot in you mentioned the Harvard IAT. I have a lot of reservations about the IAT. I mean, there has been a lot of examination of it in terms of its reliability and its validity, and it's not exactly predictive of a behavior that people will go out in the world and commit certain acts. Absolutely. But so I'm, I'm really, uh, and I'm also just hesitant when a law school will administer what is essentially a psychometric test right. to students. Yes. You know, so that that. I feel like, and I hate making slippery slope arguments, but it seems like it's treading into a little bit of territory where I don't see where the law school derives authority to do something like that. So I'm curious how you couch and how you, how you frame the use of the IAT in the classroom. Is it more just a, a tool that is meant to awaken some certain idea, or is it meant to be instructive of how somebody, like, how are, how are you telling students to frame the results of the IAT? That's a great question. So the IAT, I never see. No one, none of the faculty sees. That's a person. We actually don't, 
monitor whether or not students have engaged that. So it's a link. It's part of the um, first or second module. I have to look to see which module it's in. But we ask them, like, take it and reflect on it. But what we, there is a, um, hand, a worksheet, okay, so within that module where they have to engage and take um, the IAT and they can choose which of the IAT segments they want so they can do the race, gender, um, sexual orientation, I mean, age, it's totally up to them. But we did have a worksheet that asked questions to try to get at implicit bias and to score your um, results and then to reflect on those. And I will say that's probably too sensitive. That's probably going to be changed, right? Because I, I'll give you an example, and hopefully I'm not sharing um, too much here, but we had a student who's in a particularly sensitive job who said, if I share this and it gets out, it could have consequences for my job. It's a public job, put it that way. And I said, no, you're right. Like, we don't have to have the score. We don't need to know that. Like, that's for you. We don't need the worksheet with the ones and the threes and where you, you scored how you would deal with being in a doctor's office and your doctor got a um, medical degree from a foreign country. These are the types of questions, right? Mm -hmm. But what we do want is your reflective analysis on, yeah, I took the worksheet. And here's where I think I was surprised. Like, I think that's fair game to share in a classroom dynamic and analyze and find like people have common experiences across or difference mm -hmm. with these different scenarios. But you're right, we don't need to know anyone's score and we don't have anyone's score on the IAT in particular. And we do explain uh, especially when we get into the discussion about microaggressions, that implicit bias and microaggressions do not necessarily go hand in hand, okay? Yeah. And so it's really more about raising your awareness to what your blind spots are, okay? So, for example, if you were not aware that you may, may have an implicit bias regarding sexual orientation, then you're, you may try to solve for that, right? Rather than just kind of operating in the world as if this is not a blind spot for uh -huh. you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm just, I guess, trepidatious or uh, apprehensive of, or, or rather, I guess, curious of the way that this is getting delivered because there are some, in my opinion, valid methodological critiques of the IAT and, and mm -hmm. even the... Uh, the Harvard social scientists that developed it have come out and said so. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I, I, there's evidence that even like if you take it once and then you take it again, you get totally different results. So, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily the best mirror to be reflecting in mm -hmm. on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I would be curious if there are other, other uh, methods of doing so yeah. or achieving that in a more precise or exacting right. way. But I, well, I mean, I, I overall, I, I agree with the message of it, you, yes, know, you know, but yeah. uh, I'm just curious about how it's being utilized as a tool. Yeah, so I, I think in, in, in recognition of that, we, that's why we paired 
take the IAT online, but then here's this other tool. Because uh, I was aware of the, of the criticism. And so I, so yes, it had to be more than just the IAT, you know. Right. So answer these kind of, take this, this um, worksheet and answer these various scenarios, which are very clear, I think, if you, if you see it, and I'm, I, think, I think I've shared the curriculum with you all, the, you know what it is, right? It's not like tricking you, like, right, you know? Right. Like, you, you understand, like, this is probably asking me if I've got some implicit bias with um, age or weight or what have you. So the way sure. different from the IT. I will say that, you know, the class, before the students are broken into, the classes are 90 minutes. And 60 minutes are devoted to the smaller workshop. The first 30 minutes are the lecture. So the IAT lecture part, um, we definitely try to not explain it in terms of the IAT, but more about how bias works, right? Or how implicit bias works. So I don't know that we're necessarily like wed to promoting the IAT. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I because... I think it's so easy for programs like this, I mean, especially when it's brand new, to mm -hmm. uh, be subject to over-criticism and, and to, I guess, leave its own blind spots. I mean, I don't want to see the whole program get torn down because it comes out that the IAT is, is very fallible, you know? So oh, yeah. stuff like that. You brought up the, the topic of microaggressions, and that's right. super hot-button political topic these days. It's something that gets thrown around a lot on campuses. I'm curious about how that fits into the rubric yeah. of the classroom and how that's yeah. how that's instructed. So again, kind of looking back, I'll say this, Jake: the class is too short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so much to cover, and microaggressions got you know um, collapsed into the same module as implicit bias. Had I had another week it would have been separated. I, I think it just overwhelmed us because during this time period, one of the benefits that we had is that the class was able to address current topics as they were, I mean, open the news, listen, read the newspaper. There's something every day to... Yeah. to it's a good time to be in law school. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There, there's content to, to, to delve into every day. And we did. So the Van Dyke trial was, was going on. The Kavanaugh hearings were happening, oh, and God. we're trying to talk about microaggressions uh, yeah. and implicit bias <laughs> uh -huh. and all of these things. And so that module was both very packed and exciting, but very frustrating for students, sure. too, because we didn't have time to give the attention that we really needed to to drill down on how these current events fit into either one of those categories in, in any way. So had I an opportunity to have a, another segment or shot at it, if you will, um, the microaggressions would have been a separate class and we would have had more opportunity to really explain. I, I think students understood the impact, but they we didn't have time to talk about well, what am I supposed to do about that? You right, know? Yeah, so I'm, right. I'm in a room and I'm pretty sure something just happened. Could you give me some tools on what we're supposed to do at this point? Yeah. And that's what we did not have time to get to. And that's, that, was, that, was not, uh, that would not be in the 
success category that we weren't right. able to deal with that. I guess for my own edification and for that of the listeners, do you have a working definition of what a microaggression is? Or, I mean, is it kind of one of those, you know it when you see it type of things? <laughs> it, I mean, it seems so subjective in like the eye of the beholder as to what a microaggression can be. Spoken to one person versus another it may be perceived totally differently. Well, I think that's true. And I, th I think that is um, part of the challenge with the, the microaggression, but it's definitely a statement or a behavior or a conduct that's directed toward another individual that likely has some sort of, um, how can I describe it? I don't want to say, let's just say... Uh, Ignorance uh, or bias. Well, I'm yeah. saying, but, but the, 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 the target, the right. target of the comment right. is someone who is not in a position of authority or they have been subjugated or in, in society or culturally have been dehumanized or diminished or somehow you would classify as a minority or other, mm -hmm. I guess, right? Yeah. And so ultimately, you're right, the, the, the class discussion to the extent that we were able to get into it, that was the other concern. It's like, well, if I didn't mean it, it meaning the person who's uttered the microaggression, is it still a microaggression? And it's like, well, you need to understand the impact of what you're saying. So we always got this issue of, well, it was just a joke. It wasn't meant to harm. Doesn't move it out of the category of being a microaggression, right? Or I didn't know that something that was uttered or said could be considered um, harmful. So, like the classic example, right? Mm -hmm. And the classic example, I'll just use myself because we always say use yourself as the example and don't uh, try to, you know, talk about other experiences that way. To say that, oh, well, you're so well spoken. Okay. Well, that may be true, but that's seriously loaded, right? Because yeah. that presumes that a black woman shouldn't be well-spoken somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that's, that's like the classic uh, microaggression example. Okay. I mean, so does that change just based on the intonation? Because like, the way you said you're so well-spoken is with a little bit of surprise in your voice. I mean, so I could see how in that instance it would be, you could, you could draw the conclusion that the, uh, the underpinning, the, the premise underpinning it is that you shouldn't be. But like if I just said something like, I mean, you, we wanted to have you on the podcast because you're so well-spoken. I mean, th th those are essentially the same thing. I mean, so again, I think that the locus of it being a microaggression is sort of in the context, you know? And it seems like it's very based on not the individual sitting across the table from me right now, but on the group identity right, of, the, of right. the person, you know? Well, like one of the other examples that we try to use to get at it is that, you know, it, all, it doesn't just happen in isolation, right? So you've got to know something about the person you're sitting across from to know, like, that's probably a question, or that's, I probably want to get to know them a little bit more before I come with that type of um, observation, right? So... An example that we gave in a um, case context involved a woman who happened to be an African-American woman, but she's very, very fair-skinned. 
But she was known and presented herself uh, as an African-American woman. And long story short, she's in court, she's dealing with an issue, and they will only refer to her, right, at, in her, by her first name, okay? Mary, answer the question, Mary. Answer the question, Mary, right? And she's like, no, call me Miss Hamilton. And the judge is like, answer the question. And so eventually she gets held in contempt of court because she refuses to answer the prosecutor who refuses to refer to her as Miss. Now, you know, in 2018 or 19, we may say like, what, just answer the question, what is the problem? But if you understand the context of that, referring to a black woman by first name is so disrespectful. Like that, you know, we fought so long to not be called boy, girl, first name. You always want to approach, start here, right? And don't just, and so, I mean, that's a lot to know. Okay, so I got to know the history of all of that. Well, I think that's what we're trying to say. Like, you have to understand some some context of the people that you're working with. Yeah. So, like, for example, let's take it out of the courtroom context, and you're in your office, and you're meeting a client for the first time. You know, my, it's the same dynamic, right? Until people give you permission, then, you know, let's... let's um, Proper dignity. Yes. Yeah, given... Yes. Okay, so with what you just described, would it be fair... So the example you gave mm -hmm. does not sound micro to me, that it, it, especially if the prosecutor was doing it on purpose. Right. We don't know. Right. But, but you're right. And that was the other part of the class, Richard, that mm -hmm. uh, students were frustrated by yeah. because many of the examples, students would say, that's not micro at all. Right. And so, I mean, there's so much. The, you know, the microaggression piece was definitely you know, could have taken up the entirety of this course, but it mm -hmm. certainly needed to have a full module dedicated to that alone. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I, oh, I, I do think that, like, the, the concept in and of itself needs to be debated in an open forum in order to, like, really, I think, flesh out and define the parameters of what the idea encompasses because maybe I'm even just getting hung up on the name microaggressions. Mm -hmm. I feel like it, there's probably a better name out there because it seems ill-suited to to describe the type of behavior we're talking about. I, you think of aggression as an act of intent. And here, it doesn't... I guess intent isn't really the the, the source of the aggression. It's it's what things that you are saying that are perhaps ignorant, you know? So I... I micro ignorance or uh, you know like or yeah. micro bias or something like that might be more suited but uh, aggression i feel like allows by calling it aggression you allow for the person who are, is perceiving the microaggression to uh, respond or to be hurt in a way that maybe is not necessarily trying to be communicated towards them and that might actually have a chilling effect rather than a mm -hmm. you know drawing a circle around my enemies effect so it, it seems like a a, a common a common enemy type of politics rather than a common humanity type of politics. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I think this was, you know, ideally in the, in the workshops, that's where we wanted the discussion to go, right? right? For people to feel able to have that discussion. And if we could, I just think this class 
to have that space, to have those types of discussions, like that's what this, again, kind of getting back to the original question, like what does success looks like? looks like? It looks like having that very discussion. And maybe there's no agreement, but we've been heard. We've heard each other on mm -hmm. it, right? And right. so again, we've got to tear away, well, I'm assuming he meant this, and I'm assuming the intent is that, and I'm assuming, or you're assuming I was hurt by that. Maybe I'm not. I mean, all of that, we never have time to really get to. Instead, we're siloed off and we, you know, talk about it amongst our own groups. Yeah, right. And then we right. get entrenched. And so success is if we can get down to that level of discussion and walk away not injured. And I think one of the things we were obviously concerned about is people leaving the class injured, right? Frustrated by, this didn't help me. This actually just opened up wounds. And we... I've relied implicitly, right, on my mm -hmm. workshop leaders to have the tools to manage the discussion. And so, you know, some days they got it right. Some days they needed to readjust. And, right. you know, that was, that was part of the process. There were so many people to manage. Um, so the beauty of the format, I think, was the breaking it down but then the personnel management um, was a challenge because I've just got so many people to try to keep checking in. So the other layer to the class were second and third years who were TAs. So they were observers of this dynamic in the classroom, okay. watching and reporting back. So I don't know that the first years understood that. I know that they didn't because they said that in the survey. Like, what are the, what are the two L's and three L's here for? What are they doing? Um, some of them were there, you know, handing out papers and collecting assignments. But really, for me, I needed to have those students there to then give information back to me and the other leads of the of the class and to the um, workshop leaders about what's working and what's not working. And here's how you might want to adjust. I'm curious, because uh, I, I was part of the the town hall forum with Dean Toffman when he was going over the results of the climate survey, mm -hmm. which happened last semester in mm -hmm. the fall. And one of the findings was that students who lean to the right uh, politically feel like they are silenced in the classroom uh, for fear of you know, violating some kind of social norm or saying something that falls outside the Overton window, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I have libertarian leanings and more than anything I recognize that I need my brothers and sisters on the left and the right in order to create the best possible learning experience in a sophisticated academic environment like this. I mean, many of us will go on to be policy influencers. So I'm curious if there is any focus in the classroom on perhaps, you know, breaking down bias towards people of the opposite political spectrum and, and yeah. understanding that the free exchange of ideas in a law school environment is so vital and critical to right. the learning experience. Yeah. No, I agree. Other than trying to break the students down into smaller groups and trying to manage the discussion, so I, I think we could have used better prompts. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do for the fall with the workshop leaders, giving them better prompts, uh, questions. So they all have questions, right? There's always there's an exercise, so there's questions already in play. I try to kind of get at the issue that you're talking about, but I suppose we could get more direct. 
about, well, what if the opposite position is, right? The, the facts of the matter is most of the workshop leaders, I, well, I don't know. Actually, you know what? I don't know. That would be implicit bias on my part. I don't <laughs> know. I Wait, don't know. What were you going to uh, say? Well, I, I would say maybe they're not, maybe, yeah. maybe they're not, I, but you know what? I, to be fair, they come through a, there are people from corporate and um, uh, firm culture. So I actually can't say one way or the other. So, I mean, that was one of the things trying to get a diversity mm-hmm. of workshop leaders but still, like, that's going to drive the discussion. If the people at the head uh, give license for people to have views that are more right-leaning, mm-hmm. I'm not great at that. So I'm going to admit that. And I think, um, you know, I'm not a workshop. I was a workshop leader in one of the groups for Professor Perea, but that's a blind spot for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, there needs to be space for... Um, for everyone at the table. Again, that's kind of the point of the class. Right, yeah. No, I was just thinking that if it, if it's so nicely under the umbrella of what you're trying to do, that and especially getting to people early on in their law school career and understanding that you know a lot of what we discuss in these classes uh, throughout your entire law school experience are going to touch on things that you know, you'll see in the news and that you'll see uh, our leaders talking about. And it's important for us because we stake a lot of our credibility on being able to assess things from all angles, you know, right. to right. to be uh, accepting of, of people who may politically differ from us. Right. I, I, and I think the number is pretty small at a school like Loyola, people mm-hmm. that would identify as, you know, hardline, right-leaning conservative, but uh, they're still out there, and they have a mm-hmm. valuable, you know, piece of the puzzle to, to, right. to, uh, to add, right. I think. I mean, I, I just, I, I guess I would add one thing to that, not really about the individual student, but I think the survey showed that the discussion of law, uh, at least for people who are left-leaning, felt stilted to begin with as being very kind of um, not inclusive, right? The law itself and the way that we're discussing the law, because we're not talking about the impact of the law actually on communities, right? So kind of starting with the color of law as the group or community read so that we can understand the impact of policies and decisions on the ground. The fact that that wasn't happening uniformly in the classroom is, was a, is a sense that, well, okay, so we're already starting at a point where we're over you know, here. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, so a lot of what you're trying to do is seemingly claw back some of the discussion that had been lost and sort of surrendered to just very cold, hard interpretations of the law. That's right. Yeah, okay. Can you give us an example of that? Well, color of law. Besides the color of law. (laughs) Color of law is actually, by the way, we had Richard Rothstein on. That's great. Phenomenal, yes. Yeah. But the color of law is one of the, and I don't know how you feel, but is one of the few books that I've read that my opinion, especially on de facto segregation, 180. It was, uh, you know, essentially, okay, I was completely wrong about this, which yeah. is great that that's the book now. But, um, yeah, that I, uh, I found that fascinating and eye-opening, and everybody should read it. But. Yeah, I'm, right, I'm really glad good. that that's the book you guys chose to take up the mantle of, you know, because I, I had no reason to read it other than, you know, the fact that Perea 
suggested that I do. Right. And like like Richard's experience, that was just something where I was like, how did I not know any of this? Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So, I mean, you know, the course decidedly didn't go through a lot of case mm-hmm. analysis, except for when we got to the discussion on housing discrimination, and we talked about Plessy v. Ferguson in particular. I'm not saying that any any professor here doesn't take a deep dive into the racial politics that were mm-hmm. going on there, but you could talk about that case really more in terms of the um, enforceability of a restrictive covenant and not really dive deep into like all the mechanics that were going on to try to block black folks in St. Louis from moving into certain neighborhoods, right? And so that is what we're kind of talking about, about the entire system being complicit in that, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the folks, the private neighbors entering into these contracts, but the real estate agents, the courts, the judges who are enforcing it, you know, all of those things. So you could take a very antiseptic view of that case, or you could take a very systemic oppression look at what was happening there. Right. That mm-hmm. was, what, 1898? Am I, um, maybe... What? What are you talking about? Plessy versus Ferguson. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm, now <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I know it was <laughs> the late late 1800s, okay. but that, Wait, what that's, does that have to do I'm with I'm sorry. This? I'm talking. I'm I'm I'm, I'm quoting the wrong case. Oh. I'm, I'm should have been Shelley. Um, the Shelley case. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Then sorry. I, that's, that's okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> sorry, the Shelley case. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson was yes. separate, but equal yes. was okay. That's right. Yeah. So that was. That was actually something where, and then it was overturned with Brown Shelley, v. Board. I'm talking about Shelley v. Kramer, right? Right. But the but going back to it with the with this book, the with the color of law. Yes. The it, that's just an example that's outside the directly the scope, but it showed with the color of law showed me how okay separate but equal, and then 1954 Brown v. Board of Education comes down, and the thought was okay, well it's been 60 70 years you'd think well no because it there were still discriminatory policies and he laid out some in uh the 90s oh, yeah. that were still that were still going on in, in order to segregate communities that i found uh, and that would be the 1990s thing as we were just right. discussing the 18, but right. um that i found fascinating that it's just just because there have been these landmark cases doesn't necessarily mean that there one is not still holdover from before or so yeah right and so again to the extent that we could really get to all of that in this five-week course we the inquiry for the students in reading the material and reflecting on it mm-hmm. ultimately was do you think this is still a problem is housing discrimination in chicago still a problem i think you would be surprised that a lot of students well there were definitely a segment of students that thought no Mm. it's people can pretty much live where they want to live and so uh and then the great majority were like well yes obviously like just again look at the paper and just see what's going on with the property tax you know all of the The things the TIF program program, all of that right so i yeah, so we try to get students to understand what's happening today. So yes, historical information from case law that we're reading 
I would hope that when you get into your second semester of law school, you can ask the instructor, how does this play out now, right? So we're reading something from the 50s or yeah. even the 90s. What's the current day impact of that? I'm, I find that I'm liking a lot more of what you're saying than I thought I would going okay. into I mean, because... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you there. I, I, yeah. Okay, uh, go ahead. I mean, I mean, I, it's, it's really a shame that you're so constricted by time because it, yeah. it's almost like under the umbrella of this professional identity formation, you know, where you have the stuff like implicit bias, which I have some, you know, reservations right. about as I express, but it really seems like your class, if allowed to extend over a period of time to its logical conclusion, is like, let's think about the law type of class. You know, right. it's, it's really like a a holistic approach to thinking about the law and thinking about these big questions and, you know, where it stands today and where it's going from, like, a legal realist perspective, right. you know. Um, right. That that I'm totally on board. I mean, it's it's a shame that you're constrained by time. Yeah. So, I mean, the constraint by time, I guess if you, um, I don't want to put words in Dean Kaufman's mouth, but he has said that we were piloting the program fall of uh, 18, so I've got to have a larger conversation with the curriculum committee and the dean about what are we going to do for fall of 19. The, um, logistically, it was an easy fit yeah. into where legal research ended, right? Do we even have to do legal research? So we had to negotiate <laughs> yeah. you know, with the legal research instructors. Can we get your five-week space you know, what's happening there. So there was a final exam, I think, on week eight or nine mm -hmm. of um, legal research. But technically, the remaining, you know, time weeks were open, the remaining five. So it's hard to, we have had students in the surveys say, like, if you want students to take the class seriously, you've got to expand this to the full semester. Like, that has to happen. Others who... um you know, kind of on the opposite side, not so much. Like, we're, we're good. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, so, you know, I will say I think the, the great majority, though, lies with expanding it, but where we would fit that time in. You know, we don't have classes on Friday, and I dare I say that there will be Friday classes, but it really is a function of time, and in the part-time division, even more so. It's even a bigger challenge trying to find time there, but that's what I'm here to do to try to figure out the curriculum and figure out space and where things can go, because um, yes, it's a it's a pass fail class, and some students have advocated for graded class. I'd, I'm personally not inclined to go there because this is right. a very reflective course, right. so I don't see how we would give a a grade, yeah. a letter grade. Well, you don't want to stifle or potentially have a chilling effect on conversation either, right. thinking that that might reflect on your GPA. So I know we touched on this. Do we want to get a little um, about data that's been gathered on the class? Sure, since, sure. Yeah. I mean, so I think the, the surveys, um, in terms of what worked, people did enjoy the small group uh, dynamic and, and speaking with one another and, and just it, the community dynamic. The podcast seemed to be great. The, um, uh, let's see what else really worked. I mean, the real-time discussion of current events students really like because, again, you're kind of grounded in all of this case analysis and historical analysis, so people really enjoyed having current issues debated. Some of the 
challenges. The reading assignments were too heavy. I definitely, that's all me. I definitely loaded people up with, because there's so much content. I mean, there is so much content in the space because it, you're pulling not just from law, but from the social sciences. And yeah. so the research is, is abundant. And uh, it was a challenge to figure out, like, there's no one article. Sure. And even when there were articles, they tended to be law review articles. And I was reminded time and time again, we can't read a 60-page law review article. And so that was... Um, you know, maybe I'm just hearkening back to my law school days, but I get it. You know, it's different now. And yeah. so if you don't give people a five pager with bullet points, there's a chance it's not going to be read. And I just I miss that. You know, I, I totally miss that dynamic. And so even the most committed students by module three, like I can't keep up. I, I actually can't keep up with this reading. Sure. Do you think that's some of that has to do with the fact that the course isn't long enough? It's only five weeks. Um. And it's five weeks when it's coming at the end, yeah. and so there people are stressed out about trying to catch up with their um, substantive courses, and there's panic, yeah. and so they they can't. I get it. You know, you've got to you got to ditch the PIF reading for property, and that mm -hmm. makes that makes sense, of course. That's a pa because one's pass fail, one's graded. So I think that's where the right. And I mean, right. I mean, I, I totally get that. So that didn't work. Um, I've, you know, explained to you some of the modules mm -hmm. in particular that did not work and just the time, just people want it to be over more weeks. So those were the, the main takeaways. There's a lot of smaller complaints in between, as you can imagine, but I, I, as would, always, yeah. I would say that's what I recall being the main takeaways from the surveys. You No, I really think that I addressed everything that I wanted to speak about yeah i uh i think that is that's I mean, great is there anything more that you wanted to present on this uh course uh i'll just say here? that that it was um what what i will be sharing with the faculty mm -hmm. is that this method of teaching where you have um four full-time law faculty plus uh the outside and um, expert teaching together and then working with this huge group of TAs, right, the second and third years, then working with the first years, and then working with all the alumni, that is an incredible dynamic. So I don't, again, uh, not to keep tooting my own horn, but I don't know that any other program has integrated the community so much. And so when section one would happen, and that was um, Professor Perea's class, whatever happened that day, he was able to lift that up and hand it over to section two so that when P Professor Johnson taught, she could edit the slides, moderate, adjust, give different instruction to her uh, workshop leaders, mm -hmm section three, section four, and so on. So that integrated model, it was an exhausting teaching experience for my colleagues. I am forever grateful that they volunteered to go on this journey. I know they didn't know what they were signing up for, that it was gonna be so labor intensive because they're both trying to lecture on content, but they also have to manage an entire section of people who have different roles. And I just thought um, 
it was a powerful experience for me. So other than that Civ Pro for a year <laughs> teaching experience, yeah. this has definitely been um, the highlight of my of my teaching. I learned mm -hmm. so much. So I'm I'm forever grateful to Loyola and the students. You know, this was one thing that um, we were concerned. Like, will will they show up? Like, will they come to this? Will they engage? And they did. You know, there could have been a line outside of Dean Kaufman's door every day that this PIF course happened, and there wasn't. You know, students yeah. engaged in material. They, they went along for the journey. They gave us a chance. And again, I think that is what makes Loyola such a special place. Dean Harris, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you for coming thank on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, really and for Dialogue it. De Novo, I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz. We'll be back next week. All right. Bum, ba -dum, bum, bum, ba -dum. Yeah. 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 Yeah.